This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and this week's show has a bit of a tech theme running through it. We'll be chatting about ARM Holdings and NVIDIA. And later on, fund manager George Dent will be joining us to talk about Microsoft. And Laith Kalaf is my co-host this week. Hi there, Laith. Hi, Dan. Yes, and inflation has been in the news over the past few days. So as you'd expect, we will be discussing the implications of the latest data and also what it means for your money. Now, we'll also look at what the Body Shop's UK operations going into administration means for shoppers and the retail sector. And I'll be talking through the reasons why Bitcoin has risen above the $50,000 level again, giving a few thoughts on the cryptocurrency. Uh, We'll also be looking at why investors are taking steps now to avoid losing some of their gains to the tax man from 6th of April this year. But first up, let's talk markets. Dan, what's been catching your eye? Well, a lot of stuff in the, say at the start was a bit of a tech theme. And so tech stocks have been catching my eye. Um, so Arm Holdings, this is a, a designed computer chips. Its shares have doubled in price in a week. Um, and I thought this is this is really interesting. And if you if you think about what's been driving it, it's it's this latest results and it's flagging the AI opportunity. So artificial intelligence. Now, last year, I think most people listening to the podcast should be aware that artificial intelligence was such a hot theme, and um, Nvidia was the sort of the key stock people bought to to play this theme. Now, ARM designs stuff that used um, principally in smartphones, but it's seen growth in the car industry and AI. And so, um, this name—it it used to be on the London stock market. It was acquired in 2016. Uh, last year, refloated, but actually floated in the US rather than the UK. It, it did okay initially on the stock market, but it was a sort of quiet period really for for a while. It was only when these results came out that everyone got really excited. So. I wonder whether there's a bit of sort of um, people going, well, I've, I've made a lot of money in NVIDIA, so perhaps I can now you know, recycle some of that those proceeds into, into something else. And um, so, of course, people perhaps have been buying ARM for the same same sort of uh, tailwinds to do with AI. And, of course, when a share price suddenly goes up so much in a short period, there's other investors going, oh, oh my God, I, I need to get on board as well. So this sort of FOMO, fear of missing out uh, concept, I think was was in play. But NVIDIA, um, at the same time, it still keeps going up. And actually, just before we recorded this podcast this week, uh, it surpassed Alphabet to become Wall Street's third largest company by market value. Now, we've got results from the company next week. um, But there's a couple of investment bank research notes that have just come out. And and they sort of flag a few things, which to me are slightly red flags and means that we need to watch this, this stock very closely. First, one of the investment bank analysts was saying um, that customer discussions are sort of confirming NVIDIA's lead times are sort of coming in substantially over the last few months. So normally that's a, that's a sort of a, a bad sign. But um, UBS, who wrote this note, was saying demand for AI stuff is still so strong that it, it, might, it might still be okay for the moment. Now, Barclays put out a note as well, um, and they were flagging that a lot of NVIDIA's demand 
might actually be coming from companies that NVIDIA is actually financing. So in, you know, in, in investing in these sort of startup companies that are, are active in areas like robotics and machine learning. So I wonder whether this is giving a sort of a cloudy picture of uh, NVIDIA's sort of true normal underlying demand. So if you, if you put those sort of companies it's backing to one side, how is it really getting on? So definitely, definitely something to look very closely. I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll pick up on Nvidia's latest results um, next available opportunity on the podcast. Yeah, well, that is music to my ears, Dan, because I have got massive FOMO from not owning Nvidia because I've just been watching it, and I mean, it's gone up four times in the last year, hasn't it? I mean, it's, you know, and and you think it's really expensive, and then it's gone up again fifty percent uh, this year. So um, yes, if if uh, yeah, a little bit of a correction, I'm in with my with my fifty quid a month. So uh, we've also seen had a couple of other big share price moves over the last week as well. Um, Beamer and Lyft. What's going on with those companies? Well, Beamer's a stock I've literally never heard of until I, until I saw its share price. It's up more than 1,500% in a single day. I mean, this is just stuff you'd never see. So um, now this is an Israeli company specializing in video encoding technology. So um, it's got clients, including Netflix and Microsoft and Walmart. The reasons why the share price went absolutely ballistic is because it announced a partnership with our good old friend NVIDIA. So they're, they're doing some stuff on automated video conversion. So, um, yeah, obviously, you know, this stock is now on the radar for lots of people, but, you know, it seems to be that anything NVIDIA turns to gold. Um, so I guess all of its uh, partners and companies that do do something with it uh, will no doubt be thinking, okay, well, maybe if we mention AI and NVIDIA in a press release, just imagine what that could do to our share price. Um, now, the other thing I just quickly wanted to mention was Lyft. And this is a ride-hailing company. Its shares went crazy as well. Um, it issued results which implied its earnings margins were going to increase by 500 basis points or five percentage points. Um, the stock market went crazy thinking, okay, this is this, that's incredible. Um, and then soon after, it issued a correction saying, oh, sorry, we, we made a bit of a typo. We didn't, we didn't mean to say 500. We meant 50. Um, and so their shares just obviously Whoops. came back. <laughs> so, so you've got all these people who, who basically looked at this results and say, okay, this is amazing news. I'm going to trade on that. Um, and then, of course, the people who are short, uh, you know, betting that share price to fall, they would have been punished because the share price suddenly you know, went completely opposite direction they're expecting. And then, you know, and then, well, the, the question now is. Does this mean that the regulator is going to come in and say you've misled investors? Was it a genuine mistake, or, um, or you know? And of course, some investors are going, "Well, hang on, I've, I've missed out here. I've been penalised. Um, you know, I bought something on the information; and it was wrong. Do I get compensation?" So, lots of unanswered questions there, but certainly lots of red faces going around. So. Yeah, and and interesting. I think that um, you know some you know a, a number like that can be out by a factor of ten, and everyone still thinks, oh, yeah, okay, that's fine. You know, kind of like that's quite a, you know, obviously a, a big miss. But we've also had some some inflation data um, out um, recently. Uh, so two inflation readings. Um, you know, it, in and of themselves, they weren't particularly earth shattering. I don't think, but they have they have kind of rattled the markets a little bit. So. Um, so let's start with the the US. Um, so CPI in the US for January came in at three point one percent. That's um, down from three point four percent in December. 
Um, you know, you might think that's a pretty good progress, but it was actually a smidge over expectations that, that um, inflation would actually come down a bit more to 2.9%. We also saw core inflation rising in the US by 0.4% in the month. Now, core inflation strips out food and energy. And it's important because it kind of gives us an idea of how the big underlying inflationary pressure is, um, you know, pressures are, are building rather than just looking at you know, volatile items in particular, in particular petrol. So the overall picture from the US was um, one of you know, inflation proving stickier than anticipated. And the reason that's so significant is because it means less chance of the US central bank cutting interest rates uh, anytime soon. So... You know, we saw the, the S&P 500 fall 1% on, on the day. I don't think we should read too much into that. You know, it's, um, uh, you know, the, the market's risen by 5% over, over this year. It's not a huge market reaction. But we did, we did also see a significant move in the, in the US bond market with the two-year Treasury yield uh, moving up by uh, 20 basis points or 0.2%. Uh, so that might not sound like a lot, but it does. It does take the, that two-year bond, that two-year U.S. government bond, uh, up to its highest level in terms of the yield so far this year. And it's probably worth kind of zooming out a little bit here. Um, you know, the two-year U.S. Treasury bond is a very common instrument to look at uh, when investors are gauging where markets think US interest rates are heading in the short term. And the market has been getting exceptionally excited about the US Fed cutting interest rates, especially at the back um, uh, the back end of last year. So if you look between um, you know, October and the beginning of January, that two-year Treasury bond yield fell from 5.2% to 4.2%. Now, you know, again, that might not sound like a, a huge amount, but it really is for, for, for a two-year bond, and especially when you consider that over that time, there's been no change in interest rates. So all of that is really about markets projecting uh, forward what they thought the, the US central bank was going to do. And at, at one point, the market was actually pricing in six interest rate cuts uh, in the US this year. And you know what is slightly crazy about that is that the members of the Federal Open Market Committee, so those are the people who are deciding interest rates in the US, they actually tell us what they think interest rates will be in the future. So it's called the dot plot, and that's been pointing to just three interest rate cuts in 2024. So I think markets really got ahead of themselves when they were penciling in those six rate cuts. And what's happened is in the last um, you know few weeks, we've seen bond yields rising again as markets pair back those bets as that kind of stickier inflation data has come through. And those higher yields, of course, mean higher borrowing costs for the government, um, for businesses and consumers. But I suppose the good news, the silver lining, is that you know the yields have picked up, but they're still a lot lower than they were just four months ago. And it's not a dissimilar picture in the UK. Uh, inflation also proving quite sticky here. The latest figure from, for, from, for January came in at 4%. That's unchanged uh, since December, and of course, it's double the Bank of England's target. Um, now, there is there is a bit of a narrative developing in the market that, that maybe this last mile in the battle against inflation is actually the most difficult one. And you know, again, in the UK, we've seen that two-year government bond yield pick up uh, from four percent at the beginning of this year to four point five percent today. So that's probably good news for savers. Um, um, you know, if you've got money in, in, in cash accounts or, or fixed interest accounts, because it's essentially saying interest rate uh, cuts are further away. Uh, but it probably is going to mean prices firming up a bit in the fixed rate mortgage 
market. I think um, you know we have come a long way from you know the the depths of last year when the typical two year fixed rate picked at six point two percent according to the Bank of England. That's now down to four point seven percent. So. You know, borrowing conditions are much looser than they were uh, in terms of the mortgage market, but that's probably going to be cold comfort to businesses and, and consumers, homeowners, refinancing debt that they took out several years ago when the bank rate was close to zero, because consequently, uh, they are probably seeing a big jump in their interest payments. So I think as we're recording this, uh, we've just had confirmation that the UK has gone into recession. Um that hasn't spooked markets at all. We've had um, UK stocks pretty much go across up across the board, and you know that's the market's way of saying, well, you know, we've now got confirmation that the the, the economy is looking a bit gloomy. Um, does that sort of suggest that the Bank of England is going to cut interest rates sooner rather than later? And so I think you know, we've got a very strange situation where, like, on a daily basis, um, people's interest rate expectations are constantly seem to be changing. But I think. The general consensus is at some point this year, we will start to see those rates fall. Um, so I'm not quite, I'm not really surprised that you know, equities have sort of held up quite well. Um, and I know, Leith, you touched on what was happening on the bond market. But, you know, I guess the big question is, you know, has the market already priced in all, all these interest rate cuts already? Or, you know, is it just warming up for, for what could be a, a decent session to come? So... Uh, watch this space, I guess. Yeah, and inflation, uh, Dan presents it's a challenge not just for um, consumers but also businesses as well. Um, you know, as demand weakens, of course, and and the body shop is the latest casualty of that situation. Uh, its UK operations have just been placed into administration. So, um, what's what's been happening there, Dan? So, I think it's really important to stress that when a company goes into administration, it doesn't mean that's the end of the business, well, at, at least at the moment. So the administration is a process when a company who cannot pay its debts, can't borrow any more money, has to call in specialists to take over from management and sort out the trouble. So um, you get an external party appointed to control the business. Um, and, and their key goal is really to try and find a buyer for the operations. So if it gets to a stage where it doesn't look like they're going to find anyone to buy, they then has to sort of move to a process called liquidation because they try and sell the assets to pay money back to creditors. And typically in these situations, there's probably not enough to cover everything that's owed to, to all those creditors. For customers, these body shop um, physical stores are still open now. They're still trading. But you probably won't be able to use... Um, any gift cards and vouchers that you've got. So, and the shop is also likely to refuse to give any refunds as well. So, it, it, it's frustrating for a customer. Um, you have to think it's you know, it's very unnerving for for staff working there. Not sure if they you know how long they might still have a job. Um, but the body shop's got about two hundred outlets across the UK. Um, there's sort of speculation that potentially half of those number of shops could shut uh, and that would bring it in line with sort of the competition like lush um, but really i think you know you've got a situation here where you know a company whose whose success was was founded on um sort of ethical principles over the years there's been you know certainly in the last sort of say five ten years lots more companies who are paying more attention to their own sort of ethical values and so i think the body shop has just got lost in the crowd 
it doesn't really appeal to the younger generation. Um, they perhaps aren't aware of its sort of its core roots um, and how it used to be very different to, to lots of other businesses. Um, Price-wise, you know, you can get stuff way cheaper um, on on the market. So it's and I just think it, it's lots its way. So if someone comes to buy it, it's going to have to go back to its core roots and think, how can we revive this business? Um, but if it doesn't doesn't have a future, so the UK operations on, on the high street, then I think that there's plenty of other companies are just going to fill that space. Um, and it's one of those situations where you know, perhaps there's just too many players in the cosmetics industry. Um, the weaker ones are fading away. Uh, the stronger ones will get stronger, take market share. And it's just natural evolution. So obviously this, this is a sort of a very fluid situation. By the time you listen to this podcast, there might be more developments on it. But um, for now, you know, obviously not, none of us want to see a, a well-known British brand like The Body Shop disappear on the high street. But um, its problems have been of its own making for some time and perhaps just forgetting about what makes itself different and, and, and it sort of took its eye off the ball, I think, in that, in that sort of perspective. Mm. Okay, thanks, Dan. Um, now it's time to bring on this week's special guest. George Dent is part of the investment team which manages the BNY Mellon Long-Term Global Equity Fund. He's an expert in the tech space, and he joins us today to talk about Microsoft, a $3 trillion company that's still taking the world by storm. So, George, I think most people will know Microsoft for Word, Excel, and the Outlook products, because th these are widely used on home and office computers. But, but this company is a much bigger beast. What else does it actually do? Yeah, so it's a very good, good, good question. And, um, you know, interestingly, we've owned Microsoft for, uh, ooh, now significantly north of kind of 10 years. Uh, and when we first first looked at it, actually, it was it was the stuff that you mentioned that we got really excited about. So I think it was, uh, we felt kind of underappreciated. And yet, uh, as you kind of alluded to, it's sort of so core to enterprises, you know, the use of, of Office, Excel, Outlook, etc. Uh, and anyone that had the misfortune earlier in their career to use uh, one of the rivals to Outlook in particular, uh, I'm sure is kind of very grateful if they've been allowed to kind of migrate across to, to Microsoft. So, you know, I wouldn't for for a second want to kind of take away from that that core business. Um, but as you say, I think you know one of the things that's uh, turned Microsoft from what would I think still have been a good investment, but into you know a, a really great investment has been its sort of evolution. Um, so whether that's within the core business, where it's moved from um, uh, you know essentially upfront purchase of things like Office to software as a subscription or the broader shift to cloud in both of those products uh, but also of course and this is where it's got really exciting um for other people so it's that that, that hosting um uh the so augmenting the sort of software as, as, as a service and you know over the last year why I think that's become what well, people got very excited about that is of course it's meant that they are very exposed to the rise of AI uh, and you know, exposed in a way which is um, reasonably gratifyingly uh, profitable, hopefully, unlike potentially some of those sort of smaller startup businesses where it's all a lot more, um, you know, more question marks, should we say. Yeah, because obviously Microsoft is, is it done very well on the stock market. Lots of fund managers hold it in their portfolios. Lots of retail investors hold the individual shares. 
uh, it, I guess you mentioned about it, it shifted from just selling a product up front to subscriptions. And of course, subscriptions means recurring revenue. Um, and that's sort of magic to the ears of a lot of investors, isn't it? So is, is it... Um, do, do, you, do you get an idea of, of you know, once someone started to subscribe to a Microsoft product, are, are they, they they must be a sticky customer. They're not going to suddenly sort of switch to competitor, are they? Yes, yeah, so, so, that, so that's ab absolutely correct. And, and I think, you know, think about how we like to invest in recurring revenues are one of the things that we get very excited about in a particularly kind of geeky way. Um, so you know, whether you're talking about the sort of traditional office business or you're talking about um, the kind of cloud side of things, uh, absolutely. Um, and I think the other reason that people have rightly got more excited about Microsoft is that in the end of the day, it's done a great job of, of growing, both in terms of sales and profits. Uh, and if you look back over the last you know, 10 years, so taking that long-term uh, horizon, which is you know, how we, we tend to think about things, um, you know, compounding revenues at north of 10%, so around 11%, profits at 13%, earnings at, at kind of 14%. It, it's been an incredible business reflecting that transition. Um, but during that process, also, as you say, becoming kind of perhaps more recurring revenue skewed, which is really kind of gratifying. Um, and going back to my very first comment about the joys of, of Outlook, um, yeah, once you kind of move on to Microsoft, I think it is very difficult to kind of drag yourself away um, within the, the kind of core products or indeed uh, when it comes to kind of hosting, I think it's it's, it's very good at, um, uh, you know, providing what 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 um, corporates and developers need. So you, you mentioned about artificial intelligence, AI. Um, how is it actually using AI to improve both, both how it runs its own business, but also how the products might work for customers? Yeah. So, so you know, in, in some ways, I think the, the exciting bit is not so much its own business. It is what it's able to do for its customers. And there where I think it's it's very interesting is there are multiple prongs to this. And there are obviously a number of names last year that did very well on the back of the excitement over AI. Um, but if you think about Microsoft, uh, you can kind of break it down. So within that, that kind of core office suite, um, they're clearly working to kind of incorporate um, AI to enhance productivity, uh, but then you've also got the hosting side, where um, you know again they're benefiting from the kind of the, the broader raise, uh, um, broader um, uh, growth in AI, uh, and their investment in OpenAI, which again gives them a kind of another another kind of avenue. The one that I think is you know interesting and exciting, but if you like the sort of the most question marks over the evolution of the, of the profitability, is probably that core office suite. Um, where it's, it's it's very easy, and I think pretty right to get excited um, about you know what it might mean longer term. Uh, it's very um, you know I think it, it's very compelling. Um, you know this idea that uh, you know, Microsoft Word is going to start essentially kind of drafting your your, your kind of uh, essays for you if that's what you're doing, or um, you know Outlook similarly kind of doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And there's some quite interesting statistics around the productivity enhancements that you, you have there. Um, but there is a cost associated with that. So, I mean, they're obviously billing that back to enterprises in terms of getting that pricing right versus the cost to Microsoft, because it isn't costless, unlike selling you a piece of software that then sits on your own computer. Um, you know, that I think we'll, we'll see how that goes, but, but exciting. Um, the other bit, 
actually it's, it's easier to kind of go this is this is um not unadulterated upside uh, but certainly when it comes to kind of the use of their servers in simplistic terms you know you know that that i think you can be pretty confident um will remain is is kind of highly highly kind of profitable so um you know those different avenues in different ways quite exciting uh and yeah, as, as it stands now, when you look at the sort of the split of the business, um, what sort of shines through is that legacy business and new business, um, you know, both both highly profitable. Which is, if you're looking for kind of resilient, appealing businesses, uh, it sort of ticks ticks boxes in that respect. So I know it had um, the company had its results fairly recently, but what did, does it sort of does it sort of stick an actual figure on you know we made this much profit? from artificial intelligence or is it impossible to sort of drill down to sort of say put an exact number on it because it's obviously influences so many different parts of the business no so, so i um and i did have a, a look around just to make sure i'd not not missed anything um I, you know i think they're quite reluctant to break out the the, the kind of the different segments and tell you that the profitability um what you can say with reasonable certainty, of course, is if you take it up a level, you can look at the the kind of the three core segments within the business. So productivity and business processes being essentially the legacy, although, you know, of course, that's migrated onto the cloud as well. So it's not a completely clean split. You know, there you're talking about uh, in the last quarter an operating margin of around 53%, which is really pretty impressive. Intelligent cloud, which is more the hosting and you've got kind of AI in there as well. You know, they're 48% operating margin. So not quite as high, but really pretty good. Um, and then, you know, the, the rest of the business, if you like, which would include things like gaming, 25% uh, operating profit margin. So, you know, most businesses would consider that incredibly high. It's obviously a bit lower than the kind of Microsoft average. And where they do provide guidance is around kind of where we're going from here in terms of, of um, you know, expectations. So, um, you know, there again, the trajectory would seem to be positive in terms of, of profitability. So on the subject of gaming, um, the company recently spent $75 billion buying Activision Blizzard. Um, but but almost straight after we saw this you know, very long-winded acquisition finally complete, Microsoft joined quite a few other companies by saying we're cutting jobs in the gaming area. So uh, it's it obviously, it obviously seems to be, um, you know, I'm right in saying there's a potential slowdown in terms of what's happening in the gaming sector, but it, it is... Is it really an important part of Microsoft's future? Um, but it, it must be if it's spending spending that much money. The, the gaming market, and, and you're speaking to a non-gamer here, so I, I've, uh, it's, it's not something that I um, uh, have, have a lot of personal experience of. But it is a market which is very attractive in terms of, of the kind of long-term growth, and it's a nice, I would say, extra element to the Microsoft story. But I would characterize it that way you know it's it's not um at the core of the business in the way that the other two segments are um the fact that they're spending 75 billion and you know on one hand you look at that number and you go oh wow that's a that's a lot of money but it also speaks to you know the incredible amount of cash that this business throws off that they can go out and spend 75 billion and not have it significantly negatively impact the um shape of the balance sheet the 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 um you know the fact that it remains um an incredibly kind of well capitalized uh, business so um you know yes big acquisition uh, i think it probably does make sense strategically uh but it but i think it's pretty still fair to say that that gaming remains a, a little bit of a kind of nice to have 
versus the the core businesses um, that we've sort of talked about talked about previously. So, so we've we've been discussing the big opportunities and, and the reasons why investors park their money in in Microsoft shares. What what are the actual the risks involved? So, if you you know, obviously you're an investor. Some of our listeners will probably be investors. Uh, what do they? What do you really? What perhaps keeps you slightly on your toes or slightly worried with Microsoft? The the business from a kind of well from a fundamental perspective is performing very well and you know i think confident that there are some great structural tailwinds behind it which is a lovely place to sort of start start from um when we think about risks i mean, i think that the two areas that we would probably spend the most time on would be around uh, regulation and I'm thinking, you know, particularly, and obviously, if you go back far enough, we all remember, you know, Microsoft's um, no sort of stranger to some of the challenges that come with being very dominant. Um, but more particularly now, I think the risks lie around AI, and it's very noticeable that Microsoft and others are um, focused on making this about enhancing productivity. They're rightly very cautious about suggesting that you're going to start to replace workers, because that's where I think all of these businesses start to run into problems. So insofar as you can make labor, make, make um, employees more productive, that's great. And bear in mind that we have been through a period of pretty stagnant productivity growth. So we're, we're overdue a technological revolution that will kickstart productivity growth. Um, and that's what Microsoft and others are, are, are you know, clearly um, trying to do. Um, and I think there's every chance that they are successful in that respect. Insofar as that's what they do, um, then I think we can be you know, relatively confident that regulation um, will be kind of light touch. But if you do get to the stage where you are uh, replacing people, then I think it becomes a different conversation. And they're going to be very mindful of that. Equally internally, we're very mindful of, of the, the risks associated with, with that. That was George Dent from Walter Scott & Partners and part of the team which manages the BNY Wet Mellon Long-Term Global Equity Fund. Now, we've got time for just a couple more bits. Um, I'm really glad you're on the show, Laith, because you are our expert on cryptocurrencies and we need to talk about bitcoin so um great <laughs> why, <laughs> why so tell us what why is why is bitcoin on the move again um well bitcoin is always on the on the move dan as as, as you know um you know it doesn't it doesn't stand still for any period of time uh it's now trading about fifty thousand dollars uh once again that's the first time from the heady since the heady days of 20 21 so um you know during the pandemic when you know things like bitcoin just went through the roof uh it's up 15 percent this year many people are putting that down to the launch of spot etfs in the us uh they were given the green light by the us regulator a few weeks ago and these these etfs so exchange traded funds are being offered by big fund providers like blackrock like fidelity and like invesco and the theory is that that's a big step into the mainstream for for Bitcoin and for, for crypto more generally. And, and I think, you know, I think that's 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 probably true uh, because these are now regulated products. They offer convenient access to Bitcoin for, U, for U.S. investors, potentially institutional investors as well. And they could, of course, be uh, rolled out glo globally if they are successful. Um, you know, I think there's probably there still is a question mark about um, their their long term adoption. But you know, the fact that they're up and running, uh, they've been approved by the SEC and they've got money coming in. That's obviously kind of positive signs for the cryptocurrency, and I think that's been reflected 
um, in in the price. I mean, a slightly, you know, there was a slightly farcical element to the launch as well because um, just before the SEC made their announcement that that these things were going to be allowed to to be sold to investors, someone actually hacked the SEC Twitter feed. And they 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 announced that that you know they basically pre-announced what the SEC, SEC said, and the price of Bitcoin went up, and there was this huge sort of um, row back, row forward on what's actually going on. But I mean, and that, that, that's perhaps um, you know kind of par for the course in that the kind of uh, the crypto market, which is still a little bit of a, a wild west, and you know clearly there's still a lot of price volatility there. You know, if you look back to 2021, again back to the, the lockdown, you know, the we, we we saw kind of you know during the pandemic. Bitcoin hit a high of over $60,000. It then fell to around $17,000 uh, last year. Now, as we say, it's back above $50,000. So, you know, there's a really roller coaster ride there. And you know, part of that is because Bitcoin doesn't really have any fundamentals um, that people can kind of latch on to. And, and probably, you know, in the long term, that, that comes for, for Bitcoin are pretty binary. So, you know, either becomes it becomes an established part of, you know, the investment world, possibly even becomes, you know, a, a, a well-used currency. Um, and, uh, you know, in which case, you know, it's very valuable or potentially, you know, it runs out of steam, potentially central banks launch their own digital currencies. This whole thing, you know, in 10 years time, we're looking back and thinking was a bit of a fad. Uh, we don't know what, what, what one, you know, which of those possible futures is going to play out, but that perhaps explains why you've got such huge price volatility because you're essentially, you know, looking at an asset which could be worth very little or could be worth, very, uh, you know, a huge amount. Um, so we don't actually have the ETFs here in the UK available for sale at the moment. Like I say, it's possible that they might, might come to these shores in the future. But, you know, anyone who's um, you know, putting money into Bitcoin as ever, um, you know, if you're putting any money in, that should be money that you are willing to lose in its entirety. And it's not just me saying that. That's what the UK financial services regulator uh, says as well. So, um, you know, it is, uh, it is prudent advice. Now, before we go, I thought it's worth putting something on listeners' radar given some big changes that are going to happen in less than two months' time. So from 6th of April, capital gains tax allowance is going to be cut again. It's going to move from £6,000 to just £3,000. So it means anyone fortunate enough to be sitting on capital gains might want to think about utilising current allowance before it's slashed. So Laith, what can our listeners do? Yeah, that's right. So, so you know, the capital gains tax allowance being cut, dividend allowance is being cut um, as well. That's falling to to five five hundred pounds next year. That's the amount of dividends that you can receive tax free, uh, falling from one thousand pounds this year. It was two thousand pounds last year. So there really has been a very big attack on small shareholders. I'm surprised that we haven't seen, um, you know, a lot more. Um, you know, a lot more criticism of the government really for, for kind of launching this attack. I think probably because a lot of it came in the in the wake of the kind of um, uh, the kind of mini budget, and everyone was just kind of happy that you know the UK wasn't totally going and um, you know down 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 the toilet in terms of the kind of um, you know big ructions we saw in the bond market at that time. So. The, the the people are potentially going to be paying a lot more tax on on gains and on dividends unless they take action. So there's a number of things that people can do. The first and most obvious thing for people to do is to use their tax allowances, their, their tax shelter allowances. So your big one is your ISA allowance. You can put up to £20,000 into an ISA each year. Uh, if uh, those are investments that you hold within them in a stocks and shares ISA, those are then free from uh, income tax and capital gains tax. 
um, so you don't have to worry about those cut allowances. Uh, and if they're held in a cash ISA, then um, again, you don't uh, you don't pay any tax on on the interest generated. Um, you also have a lifetime ISA, which is part of that twenty thousand pounds allowance, which might be worth um, considering. Um, that's that's uh, has certain restrictions on it in terms of age and what you can use the money for, either a house purchase or for retirement. Uh, and you can put into four, up to four thousand pounds of your ISA allowance into that lifetime ISA, and the government boosts, boosts it up by twenty five. And you've also got SIPs as well, so self-invested personal pensions, or actually pensions more generally. Um, so you put money into a pension, um, you get tax relief on your on your contribution, and then your money going forward um, is, um, uh, um, is 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 then free from capital gains and, and income tax. But I think the thing that, that both 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 of us down have, have have picked up up on recently is there seems to be kind of quite a a kind of rise in popularity of this this process called bed and ISA. Um, and it's a rather um, unusual phrase. Um, it comes from um, the old um, uh, process of what's called bed and breakfasting, which was people used to take the capital gains by selling a share. And then the next day, they'd buy the same share back. So basically, they take the capital gain, and then they're still invested. So essentially crystallizing your gains within the allowance each year. HMRC actually put a stop to that. But it is still possible to bed and ISA, i.e. sell an investment and then buy it back within an ISA. Um, and then obviously kind of once it's in the ISA, um, the, uh, the, the investment is then free from inc- uh, income tax, tax on your dividends. It's also free uh, from uh, capital gains tax on future capital gains. But obviously when you're selling the share, you do have any capital gains tax to pay. So you might want to make sure that when you're selling a share for a better nicer, um, you stay within the, um, the annual CGT allowance. As I say, currently that is uh, six thousand uh, pounds a year um so um you know the the most most platforms will have a bed and isa service that you can use you know, you don't even have to buy the same share back you know if you don't if you want to if you if you if you think that you know an investor has run its course you can choose a different share um or you can choose you know a fund if you wanted to um so the cutoff date for those bed and isa transactions is normally a few days before the end of the tax year because the process takes a little bit longer than just popping your money in so um don't leave it to the very last minute if you want to do that uh, and just finally this other this other sort of slightly related idea which is called bed and spouse um so again a very strange uh, uh phrase again it comes from the bed and, bed and breakfast uh, and it basically um uh, revolves around the concept that basically you, you and the spouse or civil partner each have a capital gains tax allowance so if you're holding a, a share where there's a very big um, um tax uh, capital gains tax liability you can actually transfer um, some or all, uh, or all if you wanted to, but some of that um, uh, holding to a spouse, and that doesn't incur capital gains tax. And the benefit of doing that is that you can then crystallize the share and use two capital gains tax allowances. So in this tax year, two lots of £6,000 protecting that gain uh, uh, from tax. And there might, might also be some benefit if if you, you know, if one, one or other of you is a lower rate, uh, has has a lower tax rate than the other one because um, the difference between um, uh, capital, the capital gains tax you do pay is ten percent for basic rate taxpayers and twenty percent for for higher rate taxpayers. So there's a number of things that you can do, uh, but just be mindful that you know the tax take is 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 rising and and uh, quite a lot of it is is unfortunately falling on uh, I think smaller investors. So thanks very much, Leith. That's all we've got time for this week. We'd love it if you could leave a rating for the show wherever you listen to it. And don't forget to tell all your friends and family about how amazing this podcast is. 
Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. See you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares magazine. The podcast isn't telling you if a certain investment is suitable or not. Don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that how you're taxed will depend on your individual circumstances and rules can change. The way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.